Welcome to another episode of 100% Legal, a podcast brought to you by the Aberdeen University Law Society. My name is Mega and I will be your host. Today, Melina and I are joined by Ian Duddy, who is the chair of the Scottish Human Rights Commission. Mr Duddy has a list of many achievements and held various positions, including being the ambassador to Chile and Uruguay, being the head of political human rights and press in Geneva, and being the deputy director in the UK Intellectual Property Office Department of Business, Innovation and Skills. Mr Duddy talks to us in depth about all his responsibilities and duties he has taken on and how he has made such positive impacts in the world of international human rights. Good afternoon, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you too. So there's so much to talk about today, but could you begin by telling us about your academic journey because you've not had the traditional legal route. So how is it that you got into human rights? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't do a law degree. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, So I went to Loughborough and I studied economics and languages. Um, And I really got into human rights through my career um, in the Foreign Office. Um, So at that time, I joined as a a young graduate about 20 years ago. And uh, one of my first jobs uh, was um, working on the Western Balkans at the time when there was a, a conflict. And um, a lot of my work was around human rights and uh, justice and also pursuing war criminals. So that really was a fascinating job for someone early in their career. And that got me started on the human rights journey, if you like. So you mentioned it was was it a particular case that made you interested in human rights or was there an abundance of um, reasons that you decided to pursue human rights? So um, there were particular cases um, that were really of interest to me, particularly dealing with um, war criminals and um, trying to seek justice for some of the victims in in the Balkans after the conflict at the end of the 90s and early noughties. Um, And then through other jobs, I started to look for um, further jobs in the Foreign Office with um, human rights angles. And um, it was really when I went to Geneva, which I think is the international home of human rights, uh, I got a job uh, leading the human rights team uh, for the UK in Geneva. And that really fascinated me, the job, Um, getting to deal with a whole range of different countries, lots of civil society actors, uh, lots of different stakeholders, whole range of issues. Um, But at its heart was about trying to Uh, improve the human rights situation globally and uh, that really uh, was the start of my complete passion for human rights if you like. Thank you so much for that Ian. Um, Our listeners range from first year all the way to fourth year so just to clarify would you please explain the difference between human rights and international human rights and would you say that there's a lot of overlap between the two? Yeah, so um, I guess in my career, my is focused predominantly on international human rights. So when we talk about um, global human rights, we talk about the 
treaties uh, and the UN declaration, which are, if you like, um, the architecture for all countries. Um, and when, when we talk about human rights at a domestic level, uh, for me, that's talking about the policies um, and the programmes that the UK and devolved governments uh, put into place to promote and protect human rights. But whichever country you're in, there's usually uh, some uh, connection to international treaties, international architecture. All countries are bound by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, but obviously some uh, implement it uh, better than others. Okay, thank you. Um, you've obviously had many accomplishments throughout your career, including being the head of human rights and the rule of law department of the UK Foreign Office. What did this role entail and have you ever had to make a difficult decision? Sure. So when I was head of human rights and rule of law at the Foreign Office, it was quite a large department. So I was managing around 50 people and also our team in uh, Strasbourg at the European Court of Human Rights and a couple of other colleagues who were based overseas. So it was quite a big management responsibility and a, and a big leadership role. Part of my job was having to promote and uh, defend the UK's record, um, but also to um, promote and defend human rights globally. So um, questioning the human rights activities of governments at the United Nations, uh, trying to set up commissions of inquiry where there had been widespread human rights violations. So I did quite a lot of work in Syria, Sri Lanka, uh, Ukraine in my last couple of months. Um, and in terms of difficult decisions, um, that, that's an interesting question. I think I think often the most difficult decisions as a leader are, are around um, those that affect affect people. And um, so it's not necessarily a, a, a big crunchy legal problem or a policy issue. It's it's those that affect people. And sometimes um, in government, um, you weren't always able to um, satisfy everyone's demands for action. Um, and that would lead to disappointment. And that was sometimes difficult. Um, to give you a practical example, uh, a very difficult decision I had to take in my last few months uh, working in the Foreign Office um, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine was suddenly having to surge a lot of people to work on war crimes um, because you know it's very important that uh, they should be documented, investigated and people held ultimately accountable for war crimes. But that also meant having to stop some other bits of work that were equally important and people felt very passionate about. Um, but we, I had to surge people onto uh, the larger priority at the time. So actually sometimes telling people to stop a, a piece of work that they're very passionate about and surge onto another area of work was a, quite a difficult decision. Um, and um, I think that's always uh, the case for many leaders um, about trying to work out which is the priority and how you best resource it. I can imagine that there's a lot of pressure alongside that and sometimes maybe some guilt if you feel like you've not always been so successful. So how do you deal with all that pressure if sometimes, you know, you can't make the best 
decision or if it doesn't go the way you want it to? Yeah, so I think um, an important part is to learn from experience. So when you make decisions, um, be confident in making them, but also be willing to learn from them. Um, and also for me, I think talking to people, having a good peer support network. So uh, people in, in my organization and in other organizations that I could talk to and test ideas with um, so that you don't feel so lonely when you're coming to make those uh, tough decisions. That's great. So as well as that, you have also served as a UK ambassador overseas. What did a day to day look like as an ambassador and what countries did you visit and what were your duties as an ambassador? Yeah, so let's look at the first question first. Um, what's a day to day job look like? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I used to get asked that a lot and it's really difficult to to give an answer of a, of a typical day because it's so varied. So as um, a UK ambassador, you're covering the whole waterfront of issues in an embassy. Um, so that could include um, uh, trade, uh, economic business, uh, helping British companies, um, uh, dealing with um, British nationals, consular work. That's a really important part of the job that often gets overlooked. So responsible and helping British nationals who get into difficulty overseas. Um, security, defence issues, uh, human rights, um, and basically no two days were the same. And often I would be going from one meeting discussing uh, how to improve um, the access for British companies to a certain marketplace, and then going to another meeting to discuss something completely different around, I don't know, environmental problems in a local area, or the um, human rights concerns that were raised by a particular NGO. So um, it very varied. And I think a lot of the time as a UK ambassador, your job is to uh, get out there, meet as many people as possible and to listen as well. You have also um, recently become the chair of the Scottish Human Rights Commission. Can you tell us a bit about your journey into joining the commission and why you wanted to join? Um, so I had, had a, a really great career in the Foreign Office, uh, 20 years. I worked in many countries, particularly in, in South America, but also Geneva, uh, in Asia. Um, it was a, a, a great career, but I felt um, now being the wrong side of my 40s, it was a chance to uh, do something different um, and change tack. Um, I've uh, been living in Edinburgh for a while. Uh, my partner's family is from Scotland, from Fife. Uh, so Edinburgh is really my home now, and I wanted to play my part in in making Scotland uh, a great country. Um, and uh, I saw this opportunity to be chair of the Scottish Human Rights Council uh, Commission, and um, I thought that's a role that sounds really interesting, really fascinating, and where I could bring something to the table, but also um, a job where I could also learn and develop. And how does one sort of become the chair of the Scottish Human Rights Commission? Is there an application process? When can you join? Yeah, so um, 
as the chair, um, you are officially appointed by the Scottish Parliament. Uh, and that's important that you're appointed by the Parliament so that you are appointed by a cross group party of um, MSPs um, from all the main political parties. Uh, and that's important to guarantee your political independence. So one of the major criteria of being an effective chair is to ensure that you are uh, politically independent from government and impartial. Um, uh, and that's the chair. But for um, other colleagues uh, joining the commission, uh, uh, people join at different stages in their career. Uh, our jobs are advertised uh, openly on our website. Um, and uh, we have open, transparent recruitment like most other organisations. Um, we have varied roles in legal, policy, communications, uh, business support. Um, and uh, so if you're interested uh, in a career or for joining us, then please look out for opportunities um, on our website. And, um, you know, we'd love uh, people to uh, join the Commission. So throughout your career, you must have dealt with an abundance of human rights issues, including areas of justice, religious freedom and modern slavery. But what is one area of human rights law you would like to see be reformed and why? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think right now um, it's uh, not necessarily an area of human rights law that I'd like to see reformed but it's an area that I'd like to see kept. And there's a current debate um, with the UK government who have proposed a Bill of Rights, uh, and that's now working its way through the UK Parliament. Um, uh, from my point of view, and also the view of the commission I represent, um, we are concerned about the UK government's plans to replace the Human Rights Act, which has been in place for over 20 years. Uh, with a Bill of Rights. Um, we don't think the government has fully set out the reasonings for uh, changing the Human Rights Act. And uh, in our view, the Human Rights Act has um, played a really uh, strong and important role in protecting all our rights in the UK. Um, and also the Human Rights Act is enshrined in Scots law. So, um, uh, it's very complicated and politically um, difficult and challenging. Um, so it's not necessarily an area of law that I'd like to see reformed, but it's an area of law that I'd like to see retained, which is the Human Rights Act. I absolutely agree. It's all over the news right now. Um, but so what sort of things are you doing to um, campaign for that? Like what, um, how, how do you kind of influence the government? So as a commission, we will um, make uh, official public statements. We will be asked uh, by the UK Parliament and also by the Scottish Parliament to um, provide um, submissions when the parliamentary committees uh, request evidence from expert organisations like ourselves. So we will spend some time analysing uh, the law and the e-policy questions, putting them together in, in reports and then presenting them to Parliament and also uh, not just sort of posting these reports, but going along to committees in Parliament and being examined, um, you know, questioned by MPs and MSPs 
about our position and making the case for why we think the Human Rights Act should stay. Um, so a lot of our work is um, around the analysis and then explaining that analysis um, through advocacy and dialogue uh, and communication with uh, MSPs, parliamentarians, uh, House of Lords representatives, whole range of stakeholders, and also with the um, local media and uh, trying to influence um, uh, Scottish public opinion as well. That seems like a very um, time consuming, time consuming and long process. But your job also has a lots of positives and negatives. What would you say, in your opinion, are the most rewarding aspects of your job and how do you compare them to the most challenging aspects? So the most rewarding aspects of my job, and I think this is something I've always looked at throughout my career, are I think two key things. For me, first of all, um, meeting many different people um, because you know that's where you hear ideas, that's where you um, get to learn about uh, new ways of working, um, uh, get to understand how different communities feel and think about uh, issues affecting their lives. So for me it's really important to get out and about and meet people and and to listen. I think the second thing that I find really rewarding and particularly in this role is um, having a role that challenges you personally and where you're still learning. So uh, I'm now in my middle age, um, but I think it's uh, never too late to be learning. And I think all throughout your career, um, I would encourage you know everyone to still be open to learning new things, new policy areas, new challenges. So to me, um, it's meeting people and it's being able to learn along the way. I think in, in the most challenging, is um, often the time pressure. Um, so uh, there are a lot of needs uh, out there at the moment in terms of human rights. There's lots of demands on time and um, trying to work out what's the most important issue, uh, how you prioritise. That can be challenging because the needs and demands are great and you can't always satisfy them. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's a there's a bit of guilt uh, um, that goes with not being able to respond to everyone's individual uh, requests. What, in your opinion, is an attribute one must have to be successful as a diplomat? Um, so I think ultimately as a diplomat, what you're trying to do is influence others to change their behaviour. You're trying to get them to see your point of view. But to me, the most effective diplomats are those people who go in and do that persuasion um, with a lot of subtlety, a lot of finesse, uh, and being prepared to listen more than talk, and often to be a good uh, negotiator, a good persuader. Uh, you need to be um, be able to listen to um, another point of view, be able to incorporate that, shape it, repackage it, uh, and then frame it in a way that um, the other side can understand. So to me, I think one of the most important attributes as a diplomat is to be a good listener. Thank you. And Mr. Duddy, how do you manage your sort of work-life balance with such a, I can imagine, stressful job? 
do you find it difficult to um, compartmentalize everything that's going on at home or how, how does it work? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. And uh, and I've that's one of the things that I've learned a lot over the last 10 years. So as you move into more leadership positions, you're as well as being responsible for policy areas and delivering on them, you're also responsible for for other people and for their well-being and their career development and their welfare. And um, and that can be you know quite a heavy load. And sometimes it can be a bit lonely as well uh, as a leader. Um, so I think it's really important to, um, you know, be very impassionate about what you do, but also to not let it take over all of your life. So, you know, uh, hopefully everyone can find a job that they find fulfilling and, and, um, challenging. Uh, but I think, um, it's really important also to have interests outside of work and a support network out of work. So for me, um, I do sport. I uh, have learned to meditate a little bit in the mornings. I take my dog for a walk in the mornings uh, when I've had really stressful long days. So, for example, working on Ukraine war crimes and over the weekends and, and without much time off. Um, it's really important for me to have, you know, that maybe half hour uh, um, to take the dog out for a walk or do something to clear my head. And then I think it's really important to have a support network of um, friends and colleagues, you know, not necessarily in your line management chain or, or in your in your office, but um, friends and colleagues that you can turn to uh, for support, for advice or just a gossip that has nothing to do with work. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have had an incredible journey in human rights and you've accomplished so many things. What would you say if you could pick would be your proudest accomplishment? Hmm. I think if I'm allowed, I would choose two. Um, my first one would be in 2016 uh, when I was working in Geneva at the Human Rights Council. Um, I worked with uh, a couple of colleagues from another other countries, particularly uh, Uruguay and from South America, um, to set up the UN's first ever um, mandate, uh, first ever investigator to protect and promote uh, the rights of um, LGBT uh, individuals. And that was a really hard fought campaign at the UN because, you know, as you probably know, a number of states in, in several countries, uh, homosexuality is still illegal. And in fact, in in some countries, um, still there's still the death penalty applicable. Um, so it was a very hard fought campaign. Uh, it was a very tight vote, uh, but we won it and we created the first ever mandate holder to investigate and promote and protect uh, LGBT plus rights and I'm really proud of the role I played in that. And then the second uh, example um, is perhaps um, more on the personal side, uh, perhaps less connected to human rights, but when I was ambassador in Uruguay, I was there during the COVID pandemic and we had a number, several hundred British tourists who were stranded on a whole variety of cruise ships and I talked earlier about 
um, one of the key roles of, of an ambassador is to look after British nationals. And we had some very distressed uh, people who were stranded, worried about getting home. Uh, one or two who were stranded on cruise ships where COVID started um, uh, spreading very quickly. Um, we managed, it took several weeks, uh, but we managed to get uh, over 500 uh, stranded UK nationals home back to the UK safe and sound. And to me, again, that was an amazing team effort. And I'm really proud of the team in Uruguay who worked with me on that. Those are both massive, massive achievements. And you must be so proud to say, especially for the LGTB movement, that's such a progressive, progressive change. So you must be so proud to um, be a part of that. Finally, what would be one piece of advice you could give to students who are listening today and who wish to pursue a career in human rights or international diplomacy? Um, so when I was a student, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. Um, so, but I wanted to keep my options open. So I really grabbed as many opportunities as I could. Uh, I was lucky enough to do the Erasmus program and to study a year overseas, uh, to learn a language. Um, I did a couple of um, paid jobs during the holidays. I was lucky to um, also do some interesting voluntary work. Um, so I think if you're uh, really interested in pursuing a career in human rights or international diplomacy, uh, my, my advice would be to grab as many of those opportunities that come your way as possible. So if there are opportunities to do some voluntary work or uh, work with community organisations, uh, I think that's always really positive on your on your CV. Also, um, what any work experience that you have, um, I think, uh, can be relevant when you're starting out early on in your career. Um, but more than that, I think the most important element um, is to be intellectually curious. So if you want to pursue a, a career in human rights or international diplomacy, um, I think you need to be curious about what's going on domestically or globally. Um, it might not be as well paid as some people going to commercial law or financial services, um, but I think if you're really interested in current affairs, um, politics, uh, um, domestic challenges, um, global issues, um, human rights and, and diplomacy are two really interesting uh, career avenues to pursue. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It's been very informative and educational. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and all the best in your careers. Thank you for listening to our episode. Make sure to follow our podcast 100% Legal on all our social media. Our handle is ABDN Law Society and we can be found on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Hopefully we will see you all on our next episode. Goodbye for now.